Hello again. Welcome back to The Deep Dive. My guest this week is Lyman Stone. Lyman is an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a former international economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He writes frequently about migration, population dynamics, and regional economics. Lyman and I dig into a range of questions that all in some way relate to how we can build a more dynamic and family-friendly society and how to reinvigorate institutions, most notably the U.S. Congress, to strengthen their legitimacy and better serve the cause of democratic representation. Now, it's worth noting that this conversation was recorded a few months ago before the outbreak of COVID-19 and all the turmoil that's followed. But I was really struck in re-listening to the interview just how relevant his themes still feel today. Lyman's a prolific and often provocative presence on social media. You can find him there on Twitter at LymanStoneKY. That KY is for his home state of Kentucky. And with that, I bring you Lyman Stone. Lyman, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. I want to start with a little background about you. Tell us about how you got into the work of uh, demography. I kind of stumbled and fell over backwards into it. So I was working at a tax policy think tank and I, I kind of like drew the short straw that I had to do taxes and migration. Um, and how do taxes impact migration? And nobody wanted the topic for a variety of reasons. Um, and I was the new guy, so I got it. I was in grad school at the time. So I said, well, you know, very, very earnest young grad schooler. I said, well, if I'm going to work on this topic for a think tank doing serious work, I should take some classes. So I really understand it, not knowing that this is not how things are done in DC. <laughs> um, so, so I, you know, I started studying it and migration led to population, led to fertility, mortality. And now I don't do taxes anymore. And I just do the uh, demography side because it's just so fascinating thinking about why people are where they are, how they got there, and where they're going. And why are you the Pope of Lutheran Twitter? Which <laughs> well, seems like the most that's, that's the most interesting and bizarre of your well, superlatives. Well, there was, a, there was a, a tournament on Twitter, uh, and um, I won. Uh, there, there were accusations of um, vote buying. Uh, I, I did not purchase any votes or indulgences. Um, so uh, you know, I, I would say I won fair and square and someone else can come at me next time. So I think that speaks to one of the things I like about you the most, which is you have a lot of very niche areas <laughs> of, of interest and expertise, which is dangerous for a podcast because it means we can go in 30 different directions. I want to start with immigration. And uh, obviously, we have a raging debate over mm -hmm. immigration right now in our country. Uh, why don't you set up, what's the common set of facts you think we should be operating from when it comes to immigration? What should be the goals? Yeah. And, and against what set of facts yeah. are we making those policy decisions? I would say uh, the basic set of facts you need to have with immigration is that immigration is declining. Rates of immigration into America are falling. They have been for a few decades. Um, and that alongside this, uh, mortality rates are rising and fertility rates are also falling. Um, and at the same time, more and more countries are opening up to immigrants and attempting to recruit immigrants, which means we can expect that immigration rates will likely continue to fall if we don't do anything. The result of this is if all these trends continue in their current pessimistic position, that American population will begin to decline uh, in the next few decades. As American population begins to decline, I think that we have we should have serious concerns about the political stability of the Western Pacific as just one example. Um, but I think we, we really have to think about what are all the things in the world that depend on a strong America and can we keep it up if our population is sicker, older, and smaller. And do you think that's inevitable based on the current trends? If nothing changes, that's where we're going. Now, as a forecaster, I hesitate to say inevitable. <laughs> Things always change. It's just a question of what and what direction. Sure. So from a policymaking perspective, do you think one of the goals of policymaking now and, and specifically vis-a-vis -vis immigration is, I mean, we share a, uh, a like for the idea of a billion person American <laughs> I believe population. in the billion Americans. Uh, yep. You and Matty Glacis and, and, and I and, and I guess a handful club. of others. Uh, and there's, again, without being unequivocal about it, it seems like there's no path to get there that doesn't involve stronger immigration flows. Correct. There's absolutely, frankly, there's no, there's no way to a path um, to maintaining any, you know, maintaining anything anywhere close to recently experienced growth without, um, without efforts to maintain at least current immigration levels. And I would note, 
To maintain current immigration levels, you'll have to have more generous immigration policy. Because as I said, more countries are competing. Fertility rates are declining everywhere in the world. It's going to be harder to recruit. So what, what would your preferred skilled or preferred immigration policy framework look like? Oh, man, that's a big question. <laughs> um, ultimately, I think that I would like to have all visas, long-term, short-term, other than just like tourist visas, but all like, you know, long-stay visas, all visas that would allow work, study, any of these things to be in one system. It's a point system. You get a certain amount of points if you get a certain score on a college admissions exam. You get a certain amount of points if a college actually admits you. You get a certain amount of points if you're related to a citizen. You get a certain amount of points if you get a job offer. You get a certain amount of points if you have a certain degree already. You get a certain amount of points if... Um, if you marry someone after getting here and you get extra points so it can extend your stay or get you uh, eventually permanent, of course, we do want to have a permanent status. But I would like to have one system where we just list it on our website. Here's how you get a right to stay. Here's how long it gets you for these different things. Um, and just do it transparently. Establish a threshold. Set it a high enough threshold that we're confident that everybody we're getting is... is um, has met our standards, of course, also a basic security and security and background check in addition to that. And then say, if you meet that threshold, you've met the threshold to live in America. If that's 20,000 of you, then we only take 20,000 immigrants. If it's 2 million, we'll be taking 2 million. And why do you think, so that, that argument is premised on a belief in some inherent self self interest uh, for for taking immigrants uh, into for welcoming sure. immigrants into our country, but it seems like that's where the argument has largely broken down among people who are mm -hmm. restrictionist. Is that not only are yeah. there where you have a you have a view, and Tom Cotton um, has has famously yeah. led um, one legislative effort on that 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 looks at the existing number of legal immigrants and says let's mm -hmm. cut those in half over time and it's premised on something and I think Warren Cass has summed this up maybe the best of, of anybody from that field of thinking which is the best thing that can happen to American workers is for employers to rely on them mm -hmm. and that more immigrants inherently reduces the bargaining power of existing workers so why is that the wrong way to scope this uh, well, simply the empirical literature doesn't support it. There's been extensive research on sudden shocks to immigration, general easings of immigration, instances of deportation, in instances of liberalized immigration, instances of restricted immigration, and it just doesn't support the idea that it uh, that it has any meaningful negative impact on wages. Now, I think that the wages argument is actually um, uh, not what's really motivating people. Now, if I were a progressive right here, I would say it's really race, but I actually don't think that that's what it is either. Um, I think that what people see when they see immigrants, they see people forming separate communities that is not part of their community and people define their communities in strange ways. Um, for me, it's my church. For somebody else, it's their soccer league. For somebody else, it's this other thing. Um, so what they're seeing is immigrants that they feel like, and rightly or wrongly, you know, you can litigate another time, but they feel that those people, those immigrants, they're not like us. They're not becoming like us. They're not joining our community. Now, there's so many reasons people have this perception and we, we can't get into all of them. Some of them are legitimate. Some of them are very much not legitimate. But what I would like to see in any future immigration policy is a recognition that the only way you're going to build support for a sustainable immigration policy is if you have some means of getting natives and immigrants to share common communities. So that means um, you may want to think a little bit about the distribution of immigrants around the country. Do you really want everybody in New York? Or might it be good to try and find a way to nudge immigrants to live in other places as well? Um, but it also means you probably want to find a way to give natives a stake. So the interesting thing to do, right, would be to... Uh, set some minimum points value, and then beyond that, like give each native like an eighth of a share of a visa that they can sell, right? So then it's just, if you really don't want immigrants, like you don't have to sell it. Um, or that's a very libertarian way. Another way is to use civil society organizations like Canada uses to basically sponsor. And so if you're doing a point system, like I said, one of your ways of getting points you could make, like you are a regular attendee at a, in a civil society organization that uh, uses English as the primary language. Right? And then there's a stake. We, you have a mutual stake in each other. The immigrant is contributing to this existing institution, and the institution is getting somebody who's joining their community. Right? 
so you'd have this, you know, I'm spitballing here, but the point is you, you are going to have to find some way to make this shock of immigrants, uh, something that natives feel they have an incentive to welcome. And it, it, do you think that's why the, the arguments around self-interest have just failed to resonate with folks? Yeah. Cause it's not the real argument. And then, and then, as I said, the progressive response is, so it's about race. Or, or it's about a lack of compassion. Right. Yeah. It's, it's this moral failing on the part of often conservative people who, uh, who are hesitant and skeptical of immigration. And I don't want to act like this isn't a thing, but at the same time, I think communities have an interest in self-perpetuation. Um, whether they should or not, you can argue the reality is they do. People like to think that their community will last. That's not going away. You should be realistic about that. So finding a way to convince people that immigrants, I'm going to use a word here, but understand I use it intentionally, pejoratively of this view. Immigrants are not replacements. They are reinforcements. Um, they are not coming here to destroy your culture, but to expand your culture. As you know, I'm a fan of the idea in a place-based context for thinking about how to support struggling areas, population stagnant, yeah. declining areas with specific pathways to encourage immigrants to uh, to settle in a broader array of places than our current policy. Mm-hmm. How much and, and a lot of the pushback is often, I think, reflexively, well, those are areas that are not friendly to immigrants. When you actually go look at what those places are doing, in many cases, it's exactly the opposite. Their mm-hmm. immigration is a, a centerpiece of their economic development strategy. They're just not getting help from yeah. Washington in, in that effort. How much, how optimistic are you that that can be part of the story for how we stabilize areas of the country that are struggling demographically? Well, uh, as, as you know, uh, in the past, I have not always been entirely optimistic about it, but I have begun to come around partly because of these concerns. Like how do we get people to feel like they are bought into the immigration system? Well, they need to actually be experiencing the positive effect of immigration on their community. So place-based visas are a way to do that. Now I'll put it out there and I, maybe I'll ask you a question. I think the big concern here is you get, um, you, whatever your local, your level is, state, municipality, county, whatever, you get an election, you get a party in, they say, okay, we're going to, we're going to admit, you know, 20,000 place-based visas. Next party comes in and says, uh, uh, we don't want that. Right of removal. Yay, nay. Uh, nay, uh, <laughs> hard nay. I, uh, my my view on the place-based visa issue rests in the on the same premise that that your general point does which is if you give people and communities a stake in the decision you you tend to get better outcomes and mm-hmm. and folks take more responsibility for uh, for how those types of tools are used and in in at least the version that Adam and yeah. Adam Osmek and and uh, I have put forward it's, it's a opt-in system but it's not one where you could retroactively claw back, which. Uh, but I, I actually don't worry too much about that. I think I think the example of places that have, whether it's uh, refugee resettlement programs or other types of immigration that have opted in, mm-hmm. so to speak, it's been so overwhelmingly positive. You actually see a competition among those places. As, for example, the Trump administration has cut back on the number of refugees, they've now become more competitive at trying to poach from other communities yeah. by, by using those informal networks to say, this is a great place for you to be as an immigrant or refugee. Yeah. So I think the example, the experience would actually indicate the opposite likelihood, which is as the Boises of the world start to see success and traction and growth as mm-hmm. a result of it, that it inspires their neighbors to, to try to keep up. And that's that's very much, I think, how you get to the the broader distribution of benefit and then a broader distribution of positive views as well. I hope so. I, I do worry that there is policy instability. There will be a community that feels uh, like they were something was foisted on them. Um, so I think a lot would depend on how you get community input. But in general, it's a pretty reasonable way to to get a lot of people bought into the program. I want to change back to demographics a bit. Uh, if I'm correct, women in the U.S. are having fewer babies now than they actually say they want to have. And I believe that's a first. Is that, is that? Oh, no, that's been true for a long time. In fact, it is historically normative. Um, there are very few times, in fact, it's fairly uncommon around the world um, for people to have more babies than they say they want. Usually desires are sort of a cap. Um, most people, now, you get a lot of uh, children that are not timed when people wanted them, of course. Um, but in pretty much every developed country in the world and a lot of developing countries, fertility rates are and have for a while been below desired fertility. So I want to unpack it's why. It's a lot lower now. A lot <laughs> Normally lower. Normally it's like a little bit below. Now it's a lot below. Right. Uh, so 
I want to unpack the why we should care about that piece of it a little bit. You, you recently co-wrote a piece in Foreign Policy magazine, and that, and that piece began, according to new data from the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, in 2018, U.S. fertility rate hit a new low of 1.73. Once a country known for its high birth rates, the United States has today joined the ranks of many European nations with well below replacement rate fertility. And you note that low rates often are a signal of coming economic change that includes mm -hmm. major increases in public debt burdens, uh, slower economic growth, less economic dynamism in general. Mm -hmm. So e explain the why we should care piece of this. And, I, and in particular, I want you to unpack the relationship that we're coming to understand better between demographics and dynamism mm -hmm. in the economy. So um, there was some really interesting recent research uh, that showed that the growth in the prime age labor force so, you know, you're talking workers like 25 to 55, um, is really strongly predictive of the rate of entrepreneurship in an area. Now you'd say, well, how can you really prove that? Prime age labor force growth is so endogenous to all these other things. So the way they proved it was by using 18 years previous or 25 years previous fluctuation in births. Because you can't argue that those births were caused by economic activity and entrepreneurship 30 years later, right? They were clearly, clearly before. Um, and they're, they're a variation that you, you can't attribute to anything else. So variation in births and what component of prime age population growth can be explained just by that. And they found that even with that control, yes, that in fact, lower population growth leads to lower rates of entrepreneurship. And it should be noted, not just like, well, we've got 10% fewer, so we have 10% fewer businesses. No, lower rates of entrepreneurship per person. Now, they, they present a lot of different theories about why this is. They focus a lot basically on kind of a labor force recruitment side, which is an interesting angle that, that I'm not as familiar with. But you can see this very clearly if you think about um, what it's like to be a business. Right? You look in the future and you say, this place is growing 2% a year. Well, you know, inflation is 2% a year and my interest rate on my loan is like 4%. So, okay, this will about balance out. My market size is going to grow 2%. Prices will grow 2%. We're going we're gonna to pay the debt off on buying a new building or building a new plant. But if the market's not growing, if the number of consumers that are going to want your product, so basically your market is actually shrinking, well, then you need a way better investment to pan out. That is, to pay that loan off, to pay your cost of capital, you really need a high return. Um, and this gets to be very challenging. So basically, the point is that in declining population scenarios, there are fewer investments that actually pan out. Or you can think about it in terms of market competition. Places that have declining population often develop highly monopsonistic labor markets. You get one big employer that kind of controls everything. And often they end up controlling the government too, and they can extract special tax incentives out and all this stuff. Um, so what's happening here? Well, if you're a new firm and you know that the total market size is going to be growing, then you can get your start without competing with anyone in some sense, right? There's, there's the pie is growing. You can kind of get the edge of it where it grew before the big guy got to it, get a foothold in. That is some of the growth is in some sense, non-competitive growth. It's just the whole market's growing. Everybody's, everybody's rising. But if the market isn't growing, that initial sort of not quite competitive growth that, well, just somebody needs a new service. They had no prior provider for this service. Um, that's not there. Everybody has a prior provider. Everybody has a brand that they already use for your product. Every bit of growth you get is zero sum. It's competing with an existing giant. That is very difficult, which means you get this bias in declining population uh, places towards non-diversity, towards lack of entrepreneurship, towards lower innovation. Um, there's a research, there's a study a while back that looked at land-grant universities and where they were placed because this was somewhat random. It was kind of where where got a land-grant university? Um, and they said, well, did this increase economic growth in the area? And they said, uh, well, yes, it did. But only because it increased population in the area. And the increase in population could account for the increase in patenting that came as a result of this. That the population channel was actually the whole growth channel associated with these universities. So... Um, I think that that's very compelling that when we, and, and philosophically it's compelling as well. When we talk about growth, Orrin Cass, you mentioned earlier, he wants us to talk about workers, your classical stereotype, neoclassical, your neoclassical economist stereotype. He wants to talk about GDP. I'm a demographer. We should talk about people. 
People are the growth. People are the point. Whether they're workers, whether they're children, whether they're retirees. I mean, obviously, prime age workers, they make a special and additional contribution, but people. You want people. You want growth. And so to the extent that low growth becomes characteristic of a lot of the economy, a lot of the geography of the economy, that presents all kinds of downstream. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't get into the obvious one with Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, not Medicaid, sorry, Medicare, um, the uh, the intergenerational transfer that is deep in our our political contract with each other, basically. Uh, But that applies in the stock market as well, right? For your retirement account to pay off, the hot dog company that your money is invested in needs to have young kids who like to eat hot dogs. So uh, this is, there's an intergenerational transfer that is fundamental to our entire economy. The Wall Street Journal ran a piece a few weeks ago about real estate and all these boomers having these nice houses in suburbs that are huge houses that they can't sell because there's like the young people don't want them. And it's not just the young people don't want them. It's that there's not that many young people. Um, If there were tons of young people desperate for houses, then you'd have a situation where someone would buy these. But there's just not that many. So this is a supply problem. And so we at least in part a supply problem. We, we talked earlier about immigration that when you think about policy to respond. So if you buy the case here that, here that you're making, mm-hmm. it calls out for some policy responses. Uh, immigration is one very obvious lever you can pull mm-hmm. uh, that has a more immediate effect. Yeah. But you're, you're also calling for a, a more broad yeah. set of pronatalist policies. What, what does it look like? So, and what has worked in other countries? Yeah. So let me step back to this question of people feeling like they have a stake in immigration. What we're really talking about here is integration. We want to make sure that when immigrants arrive, they're integrated well, that we don't have conflicts between natives and immigrants. So one of the things that makes natives more likely to have a negative view towards immigrants is if they feel like their culture is is without a future, that these immigrants are going to come bring their culture and the original culture here is dying. Well, what causes that feeling? Often a lack of births. When, when there are no children in the community, when, so to speak, uh, uh, my father-in-law is a pastor, so he'll say when, when funerals outnumber baptisms, right? Because we Lutherans, we like to baptize the babies. Um, so this is a really important thing. This, this affects how people visualize their place in society and their place in relation to the future. What that means is if we want to have immigration – which I do, if we want to have this growth, it's not a substitute for births. You can't just be like, well, we could grow through births or we could grow through immigrants. Because if you just grow through immigration, your natives will have a negative response. I'm not validating the response. I'm just practically speaking, objectively, the political science literature is pretty clear on this. There will be a negative response. But if natives feel confident and assertive of their own future of the future of the culture that they grew up with, then they're not threatened in the same way. So the first big nativist backlash in America is in the 1920s. This is when it's really, well, there's one in the 1840s as well, but it's not successful until the 1920s. Why? Well, American mortality adjusted birth rates. So once you account for how many kids are going to die before like age 10, for the first time ever went into a concerted decline starting in 1919 really 1919, 1920, um, and they fell below replacement by 1927, I believe. Okay. This was the first period in American history where there was like a real live decline in family size. At the same time, what happens? People freak out about immigration and basically put a huge quota on it. Now, there's, and you can look it up as well. You look at people talking about immigration and they, again, this is this term I hate, but they'll say race suicide. These these native arguments are explicitly motivated by these fears. Right. So that so, creates the fertile ground for those arguments. Right. Too. So I don't want to have ground for nativism to take root and shut down the other option for growth. So we need to do both and, right? We want to have births here to whoever, and we also want to have immigration because these things are complements. Um, again, it's about getting people to see immigrants as reinforcements that you, you know, you had your children, they're here, they're growing up here and the immigrants are going to come to reinforce the cultural project that we are all engaged in together. So what we've got now though is, uh, it's, this is not just revealed preference. This is, as we said earlier, people actually having fewer children than they say they want. Um, but you also want people to have to want to have uh, larger families uh, in your scenario to, in order for this to work. You know, if we have if we if people were having the fertility they desire, I'm cool with that. I don't want to pressure anybody to have five kids, four kids if they don't want it. If you want to have, if everybody were having two or three kids, 
We're golden. We're good. So how do we do that? <laughs> well, so I have um, a three-pronged strategy. Every strategy um, needs three prongs. Yeah. Well, there's, there's kind of a fourth one is just let in some immigrants because immigrants have higher fertility. Um, but that, that's not one of my, uh, my strategies here. So the first one is uh, parenting wage. Um, that is, we should be giving money to parents for the work of parenting. It's worthy work. It's some of the most important work in society. We should say, oh, you're a parent. Here's some cash. We do this with the child tax credit right now. I think we should do something bigger. Mm. And we should communicate it. This isn't a benefit. This isn't a credit for your taxes paid. It's none of this nonsense where we try and hide what we're doing. This is because parents are important. It is work. It's good work. We're going to pay you for it. So I think that we should just give money to parents. Research suggests that these uh, baby benefits or baby bonuses do have um, a positive effect on fertility. Um, the most effective ones uh, will say that you can get like 0.1 more kids per woman for a benefit of about $5,000 per kid. Um, more pessimistic say that, that you need a bigger benefit. Um, but this gets you somewhere. It's, it's not going to get you all the way to, uh, desired fertility, but it gets you somewhere. Now, the second prong of this, um, is also a parenting wage, but it's a different kind of parenting wage. It's a wage for someone who's in market work who's working in the marketplace rather than in the home, in which case I think we should swap out the EITC, which punishes marriage and which discour ultimately discourages births and replace it Wait, with a simple... How does it discourage births? Well, one, by punishing marriage and marriage encourages births, but also it takes higher parity women, that is women who've already had two or three kids, and it gives them extra incentive to work yeah. when those women are the ones who have the lowest opportunity cost to having a third or fourth or fifth child that they might want. Right. So women who have already had a given number of children tend to have higher desired fertility anyways. These are women who might want another child, but instead the government's saying, no, 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 go back to work. And going back to work reduces odds of having an additional child for a woman. Um, so we should replace the EITC with a simple wage subsidy where we just say, your wage was this. We're going to supplement it to this period for everybody, for everybody. Yeah. Not, I'm not just for family, but again, I see it as basically a family wage right. saying, you might, you are a part of a family, right? Your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, your children, whatever, that we want to make sure that working class people are getting a wage that can support a family. It's another parenting wage. It's a family wage, yeah, right? I, I love this idea because I also think it's more likely to change behavior in the short term than yeah. EITC because you're, you, you know, see it on your paycheck. You see it on your paycheck. Exactly. You get it right away. a reinforcing mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, 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 it's dollar for dollar. It's a preferable policy. Now, um, I don't just want to do a wage subsidy. I think if you just do the wage subsidy, you're still communicating, ah, parenting is second class work. So you need to have the parenting wage and also the sort of family wage supplement, mm -hmm. right? Got to have both. The third element about which I've testified uh, before the Joint Economic Committee of Congress, um, is relates to uh, marriage penalties. So it used to be that the tax code punished marriage uh, for everybody. That basically, if you got married and both of you worked, you were likely to pay more taxes than if you weren't married. Well, in the 90s, we fixed that for middle-class people. But the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, still has a huge marriage penalty where if you are, if you got two people and they have two kids together, but they're not married and they've got working-class incomes, one of them's going to get 5,000 bucks of EITC. The other gets none. But between the two of them, that's 5,000 bucks. When they get married, Zippo, if they're both basically just normal working class incomes. So actually, as part of my testimony, I did a couple example families where I did their taxes, I did their welfare applications, I did their Section 8 housing, all these different things, all these means-tested programs. And I show that it's trivially easy to identify a very plausible working class family that's facing a marriage penalty of five. 10, 15,000 bucks off of 20 or $30,000 of income because they get all these supplements on top and then they get taken away when they're married. We got to deal with that. People act like it's some mystery. Oh, why are working class people not getting married as much as in the past? Well, because you put like a $10,000 wall between them and marriage because they know that when they get married, their kid doesn't get their food anymore because they know when they get married that there's not a roof over their head anymore. So, we need to deal with marriage penalties in means-tested benefits and in the tax code. That will encourage marriage that people already want but are financially prevented from doing. Marriage tends to increase fertility. If we also supplement it with a greater subsidy for 
wages in the marketplace. And also with a parenting wage, we're talking about a whole package of pro-family benefits, pro-work, pro-family, pro-marriage, pro-childbearing that will meaningfully increase uh, the rate of childbearing. And for every child who is born, it's going to give them a better world to grow up in. That's a very compelling case. It, you note in one of your your pieces, a South Korea example, and South Korea's fertility rates make ours look great. Yeah, they're uh, below one there. And, and they've spent a lot of money trying to do something about it. What, what have they gotten wrong? Oh, boy. So South Korea keeps spending all this money on just cash benefits, cash benefits. And I, I'm in favor of a cash benefit. I want to have one. But this is kind of what they did. And then they said, well, okay, we'll also do daycare. So we're going to do a lot of daycare, have a lot of daycare. And fertility rates keep falling. And then they've done all these different things, but what they have not tried to do, uh, oh, and now what they're doing is they're trying to encourage men to do more chores at home because that will cause babies, apparently. Actually, there's some academic research that's actually modestly supportive of the idea that that uh, unequal task sharing at home impacts women's fertility choices. It's not crazy. It's not going to work, though. Um, what's really going on is that South Koreans, people in Hong Kong where I live, Japanese, formerly employed people in Greece or Italy um, or Eastern Europe, all these countries with ultra-low fertility, they also have something in common. Lots of people who say that they get their meaning and value in life from work. Lots of people who work crazy long hours. There was a recent Wall Street Journal survey uh, that asked young people like what they value in life. And like the one thing that my generation valued was like hard work and tolerance for others. So two things, right? Um, the, my generation is less likely to say we value faith or family or country or any of these things. So uh, work. Work is actually in some sense the problem. Now, it's also part of the solution because people need work to support a family, but it's this, this pedestal of work, of almost work worship, of that meaning in life comes from work, dignity in life comes from work. If you are humiliated at work, you are truly debased in life, right? This is the ethos, the worldview that is actually anti-family because this is the moral justification for answering the email instead of going to the t-ball game. And what we know is that when people don't get to enjoy time with their kids, they don't see the value in having them. Hmm. So my argument with, uh, with South Korea and Japan is that until you do something to challenge the power of employers, bosses, managers in those countries to own their employees' entire lives and time, and until you challenge the ethos that true value in life comes from work, um, from success in the career... Nothing you do is going to move the needle. You're just going to keep doing all this other stuff when what you really need is, uh, is not to sound like a, like a, uh, like a lefty or something, but what she really needs is labor policy. Right. I was, <laughs> going, I was going to say there's a short leap from here to the, to a concern about more bargaining power for workers. And there's a lot of different ways to get to that yeah. beyond uh, yeah, collective yeah. bargaining. So if, if you don't want to sound like a lefty, you can. Well, I mean, one out. thing is, you know, non-compete agreement. You know, Thank you. I was, yeah, yeah. I was leading you right there. Yeah. So, I mean, in the U.S., in, you know, there's this case where we, we let companies, uh, we, we allow companies to have the power to prohibit their employees from being effective capitalists. Um, so it's like state sanctioned communist labor policy to subsidize these employers. It's crazy. Um, non-compete agreements are absurd and probably should not. I don't think they're, I don't think they should be legal at all. <laughs> hard, hard agree. So we have a lot of examples of other countries trying and South Korea is one of them. And, and, but most of those examples are, are ones of failure. So, so what, what you're outlining for the U.S., uh, kind of baked into it is, I'm assuming, a different approach. And, and so it depends on what you mean by failure. There are the academic literature is full of examples of countries implementing a program, spending the money, and getting an increase in fertility. The reason people call it a failure is because what many countries want is 2.1 kids replacement rate fertility. And getting there just with cash programs, it does not work. It is a so expensive. Toolkit. Right. It just costs too much money. Um, so it's not that it doesn't work, right? You spend the money, you get the effect. It's that it's really expensive. You can't do it just with cash. That's why I think that the marriage penalty side is really important. Um, there's no staying power to any program that doesn't also help Americans get into marriages that they want to be in. How does land use policy factor into all this? So uh, in the testimony I mentioned earlier, um, I point out that childbearing, 
child rearing uh, is actually not really getting more expensive over time. Uh, that if you look at different categories of spending that families have on kids, uh, the amount that they spend is rising much more than the price of what those things cost. That is, the real driver of cost is not just the price tag. It's the social norms and expectations about, you know, how many violin, violin lessons your kids should have. The big exception to this is housing, where families spending uh, has risen considerably less than the price of housing. Now, that might sound like families are getting a deal, but what's really happening is that for the last 12 years in America, in America, the average size of a new house has been shrinking. Um, people are living in less desirable neighborhoods. They're getting longer commutes. Commute times are rising steadily, even though more workers are working from home. Even though more workers are not commuting at all, average commute times, including those workers, are rising. So what we're seeing is greater housing stress on American families. So what causes that? It's land use policy, right? You can build houses. It's not difficult engineering-wise to find a way to get enough houses in that we can let people have reasonable commutes. Um, it's not hard to, uh, you know, to increase bus service, to make those commutes easy without creating tons of traffic. It's just not hard. It's not even that expensive, uh, to do in terms of public support for it, but we don't do it. Why? Local land use policy, because nobody wants to have the five floor apartment building right beside their McMansion. Nobody wants to have townhouses go in in their, their manicured lawn neighborhood. Nobody's homeowner association thinks it's, thinks it's very nice to have housing designed for modest income families right beside them. So uh, that brings us into one of my favorite of your hot takes, one with, with which I agree uh, wholeheartedly, which is that the boomers have ruined everything. And the centerpiece, as I read it, of your, of your argument on this, uh, and you have a great piece in The Atlantic outlining this, is that as a generation the boomers have propagated a, a f an economy that exerts far more control and influence over across all aspects of life, land use being one of them, uh, that have, has kind of inherently reduced the dynamic potential of the economy and has really inhibited workers and individuals from pursuing their dreams and mm -hmm. acting upon their latent gifts and, and all of this. Uh, I want you to make that case. I, I don't want to speak for you, but but lay that out. Why, why should we be upset at the boomers? So if you look at pretty much any policy arena in America, tax code, business regulation, how many papers you have to file to start a business versus the regulations once you've started the business, uh, the criminal code and all the things that can get you sent to prison. If you look at uh, the training requirements for your job, whether it's formal occupational licensing or informal that you just need a degree to apply, right? The requirements, the list of rules, the list of boxes you have to check to live a basic, decent life in America has proliferated at an incredible rate. Uh, at every stage, at every major challenge that confronted them, the Americans who were making policy, especially in the post-war period, and some of that's baby boomers, but it's also other generations too. I was it's probably a bit hard on boomers specifically. Um, you can never be too hard on the boomers. There were options on how to do these things, like environmental regulation. There were options. We could have done a carbon tax. We could have done cap and trade, or we could have done what we did, which was just to come up with a really, really long list of rules. So we did a really long list of rules with a huge enforcement apparatus, expanding the federal bureaucracy massively. When you could have just been like, use the IRS. We already have it. Done. Right? But we didn't do that. With land use. Um, we could have, uh, just found a better way to price land. We could have said, okay, we're just going to come up with a pricing structure for some of these things. Or really, honestly, we kind of already do price land. We could have just accepted that maybe you don't have a right to control what your neighbor does with their property. And we could have actually been capitalists instead of being communists about this. We could have let people own their own property and do what they want with it. Um, but instead we said, no. Let's have a really long list of rules controlling what you're allowed to do. With occupational licensing, uh, we could have said, you know what? We're going to just do like a health and safety review for each occupation. And if it turns out there's a health and safety thing, we're going to set a rule that you have to follow whenever you do this for every business. Instead, we were like, what if we got all of the businesses that are in this industry together and let them make rules about who their competition should be allowed to be 
And by the way, we're going to do it for like interior designers and all these, all these uh, businesses where there's no health and safety interest at all. Um, why? Because, you know, why not just control society as much as possible? And I know I'm coming across as sarcastic here, but... Well, what do you think is the motivation? Because there is a consistency across all these right. different aspects that there's, let's reduce competition yeah. and market forces. I think it is a almost pre-conscious assumption about what government is for and how it is supposed to work and what life is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be orderly and structured. And, and honestly, at the same time that and I mentioned communism earlier, but communism was a very live issue while these debates were being had. And I think that there was a sense in which many Americans felt a degree to which, you know, maybe a little command and control is what we need. So do you have reason for optimism? Millennials are against, mm -hmm. millennials seem to be more more yeah. in favor, less NIMBY, uh, yeah. certainly. Uh, there are some places where it seems like we're doing a little better. Um, there's some places where maybe we're not. I think on the question of certification and educational requirements, we're likely to be even more ridiculous about it than our forebears because we really think our education made us smart. Um, so uh, I think we may be even worse on that. You know, I, there are policy responses to all these things that are happening. There are pushes against occupational licensing and how strict it is. There are pushes against uh, strict zoning with the YIMBY movement. Uh, another one is uh, incarceration. I mm -hmm. talked a lot about there's pushes to think, do we really need all these people in prison? Um, there are pushes to change these things. I hope they work. Some of them will work. But do I think we're going to see a society-wide shift in favor of the beautiful emergent order of liberty? No. No Hayekian flourishing in our future. I don't think so. Uh, this issue nests underneath a broader concern you've written about, about institutional sclerosis and mm -hmm. decay in our country. Um, talk to us about that. And one, one of the signals you have for that is the, the number or lack of constitutional methods <laughs> uh, we've passed. In the last yes. So uh, I did this thing. I looked at the frequency of constitutional amendments, but I also looked at the age of state constitutions. That was a fun one. Uh, you can also look at amendments to state constitutions. Those are, those have also declined in frequency, but not quite as much. Although they may be ticking up a bit with sort of this modern direct democracy push that's getting a lot of things. Um, but what I see is that basically we are in one of the longest periods in our history. Uh, with no constitutional amendment. Now, it would be even longer, except that the most recent amendment that we passed in 1991, uh, which affected how congressional pay is raised, it was actually passed by Congress in uh, 1791, um, but it just never got ratified by enough states. And finally, enough states ratified it in 1991, 200 years later. Um, and so it's like, oh, it was a new amendment, but you really shouldn't count it. It was a long time ago. So really, it's been a long time. It's been, if you don't count that, it's, uh, I think it's almost 50 years um, since our last constitutional amendment. The last time that we had stretches this long, well, one of them ended in 1866. Uh, there was a bit of unpleasantness in the years before 1866, where it turned out there was this issue that should have been solved by constitutional amendment called slavery, and it wasn't. And we just kept kicking the can and not solving it and, and trying to come up with these sort of hackneyed controlling compromises like, oh, instead of dealing with slavery, let's just write this fugitive slave law where states are like deputized into federal enforcement against their will. That'll be fine, I bet. No one's going to hate that. Um, or let's just every 10 years change the rules on how new territories will get slavery or not and things like that. So is this kind of uh, messy situation uh, where the great American sin of slavery was basically just the can was being kicked. And then we got a civil war and, you know, killed uh, 700,000 of our people. So I don't want that to be how this current period of stagnation ends. The other period was the period ending in the progressive era where we got uh, the income tax, uh, the Federal Reserve, direct election of senators, prohibition, and uh, and women's suffrage. Women's suffrage, great idea. All on board with that one. The other four, uh, more of a mixed bag, right? Um, Federal Reserve, I'm on board with that. Income tax, in principle, okay, but also they said it would never get above 1%. Okay. I think we can both agree on prohibition being a... Prohibition, probably bad. not a great idea. I mean, I don't drink... I'm all in favor of temperance, but like it, it kind of had some problems. Also, people probably have a right to drink. So I don't necessarily want to see the current deadlock end with a deluge of, of 
progressive overreaching on all of their laundry list of policies. So I think it is better to compromise now and make some structural changes that may ease some tension rather than end in uh, uh, a red tide of either blood or progressivism. <laughs> uh, do, do you put much weight on uh, Scalia and other scholars have said the the function that used to be primarily or solely constitutional amendments has now really become that of the Supreme Court. Uh, this is effectively so. Uh, however, it doesn't work. And the reason is because it can change. Stare decisis is like a great idea. Love it in principle. Works for lower courts. Does not work for the Supreme Court. They exist. for some, In some sense, the Supreme Court exists to challenge precedent. Right. They exist to say maybe this, maybe the way this has been happening is not a great idea. Um, and so we see that, that the Supreme Court often changes its mind. We've, we've repealed an amendment before. We repealed prohibition, but you really don't want the constitutive elements of your society to be up for debate with every presidential election, which is what happens when it's governed by Supreme Court, which is basically right presidential and Senate. That's bad. And that is what's happening is that because the Supreme Court is making constitutional decisions um, about our society. Uh, it means that every election is, in some sense, constitutive, and this is this is a recipe for ultimately for political violence and instability. So, what are the kind of low hanging fruit structural changes you'd be looking for? Well, there is. I mentioned this amendment that passed in uh, in 1991 that was on uh, congressional pay, but there was actually another amendment passed at the same time. It was the original First Amendment, and it was the only thing that George Washington spoke up about at the Constitutional Convention. He said it was really important that we did this one big thing. And what it was, was we need to make sure that district sizes for the House remain small. He felt that they should not be more than uh, 40,000 people. Now, the eventual amendment that was written uh, restricted the size to, I believe, 60,000 people, that for every 60,000 people, there should be one member of the House. If you, implement, if you implemented that today, we would have uh, almost 7,000 House members. This would be a big change. This would mean that uh, these seats would be contestable by anybody. You can win that thing. Do enough door-to-door -door canvassing. You wouldn't need to be buying ads on TV because the, the TV district is too big. It's all door-to-door. -door. It's all retail politics. The amount of people who would be enfranchised into the responsible work of government. A lot of what we have in America today is a feeling that the government's not listening. And they're right. The government isn't listening to you. Your, your letters to your congressman are not being read. I'm sorry. I did my time as an intern. They're not being read. They don't matter because there's 700,000 of you in your district. But it would matter if there were 60,000 of you in your district. You could move your congressman's opinion on something just by being you. So I think that we have some, we have the largest legislative districts of any country in the world other than India, but India has a more devolved federal structure than we have. Um, so yeah, I think that we should implement the first amendment, uh, as it was envisioned to be by all of our founding fathers. Um, and then we should do it. So this is an enormous headache. Trying, just trying to get it done. And then there's a second headache that strikes me it's as... It's actually easy to get done. It's already ratified by Congress and by 14 states. So we need 12 or we need 22 more states to say yes. So if you're listening, <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to do advocacy here. You can do whatever you want. But uh, but, support the First Amendment. But that I think getting 22 states to do anything is still, ah, still sounds like a headache. A but the second headache is the governability of a... Yeah. So what is the minimum amount of expansion of the House of Representatives that makes it worth the multiple headaches? Uh, so, I mean, you can expand the house just by federal statute as well, right? After the next sure. census, we could just make it a thousand. Now, I believe it was uh, a Republican in California who just retired. Is it Devin Nunez? He's still around. Okay. It was somebody else. One of them wanted to, wanted to shrink the size to 400 as his last act in Congress. He put a bill in. Crazy. Um, I, I would like to, I would take any expansion, but I think more is better. Now, I have a couple reasons for this. Uh, one is that the House is long overdue in a very important task, and that is for non-national security matters, switching to fully remote voting. They keep resisting it, but they should just do it. They should do video conferencing for non-security related committee hearings. Just do it all remotely. Expanding the size of the house would nudge this. It would force it to happen because you can't get everybody in the room. 
Also, we have House members who are on so many different committees. They have to be experts on everything, and they're not. So they have to get these staff that are experts on everything, but guess what? They're not, which means a lot of the power is outsourced to think tanks. If you had 6,000 congressmen, you will have a lot of them who are just legitimately experts on an area, and they're only going to be on one subcommittee. Maybe two if you got really big, right? Um, which means you could have actual legitimate experts working on an directly in an area of their actual expertise. Um, and I think you would get that actually because you'd have – those would be the people who would be motivated to run and, you know, there's a sort of a um, an incentive structure there for them. Um, there would be headaches. But at the end of the day, both political parties are intimately familiar with how to get 6,000 people in a room and vote. They do it every election cycle. So, yes, there would be headaches would be, I think, the, the bumper sticker I'd, I'd uh, put on this idea. So, I, I, I'm fascinated with it, but this is this is also one of those areas where I think part of what's fun about uh, following your your Twitter feed and other work is that you are so passionate about issues like this, which seem, I'm sure, to our listeners relatively niche. But Madison in Federalist 52 actually uses 6,000 as the number at which you would not want, to which you would not want to go. Yep. Uh, so I'm sure you're aware of this, but he, the, the, yeah. the quote is 60 or 60 or seven men, 70 men may be more properly trusted with a given degree of power than six or seven, but it does not follow that six or 700 would be proportionally uh, a better depository. And then he, and then he says further, if we carry the supposition to six or 7,000, the whole reasoning ought to be reversed. Right. So why is Madison wrong about this? Madison is wrong for a couple of reasons. First of all, in another of the Federalist Papers, I forget which one, the Anti-Federalists have raised this concern and they say, this legislature will not be representative. And he says, oh, don't worry, it will be because the First Amendment is going to pass. And then it didn't. And then they kept, but they, they kept increasing the size of the House as if it had passed until Madison died. And as soon as he died in the next apportionment, they shrank the size of the House. And they continued to let the population ratio to rise and rise and rise forever. Now, Madison says that the real test here is not I mean, you can talk about governability and what that means. And you can say, well, is the current house governable? Maybe not. Um, but the real test, he says, is the, is the people that are in the house. Are they, and he uses, you know, antiquated language, but basically says, are they all rich people and celebrities? Because if so, they're not representative. And this is the litmus test he actually establishes. He says that if they are, that, that the conscience of the people will revolt, basically. Like, he makes this sort of argument like, what's that supposed to mean? It's like one of the few times in the Federalist Papers where Madison clearly met this moment where he was like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what we'll do when you get there. Because he understood that it's not going to work to have million-person districts. But also, he did envision, because in another place he talks about future population growth, he envisioned that the country might have millions of people, millions and millions of people. And he didn't know how to square the circle. So he goes back and forth in this in a couple places where he's like, well, it shouldn't all be elites and celebrities and rich people, but also, you know, uh, we don't want to let it be huge. Now, if you get 6,000 uh, people in there, and you have no amplification, and you have no internet, and you have no digital communication, and you have no means of governing people, then it's ungovernable. But if you have loudspeakers, and if you have uh, centuries of established rules and tradition of a legislative body that establish norms and expectations, and if you have a thriving third estate, so to, or fourth estate, so to speak, that is inspecting every one of these randos who is now part of the legislature, and if you have uh, a situation where legislators don't even have to leave their district to legislate, and so their constituents can immediately surveil and supervise them, this is quite governable. You can govern these people. You can track them easily. 538 will have wonderful visualizations of them. <laughs> um, this is totally governable. It's totally manageable. We have experience doing this at the party level. It's not a problem. Um, and yeah, it'll change things. And it'll change things because it'll mean tens of thousands of Americans will actually be enfranchised into feeling like they have a stake in the system. They're part of the system. They have an opportunity to contribute to their nation. So if listeners haven't already been turned off by your views on boomers and uh, expanding the House of Representatives. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get me some, uh, some rage here. Uh, and that's my goal. You have one of the more interesting uh, hot takes on sports in our country. You really hate professional sports. <laughs> you, you want them to be abolished. So, and you, th you think they're immoral. Uh, explain yourself. So I would start by just talking about I don't have anything against sports. Okay. It's great. People want to go out and 
play a competitive game and have team activities, wonderful. That's good. It's especially for children, but also for adults. This builds camaraderie, all these things. Wonderful. Professional sports, being paid for these things, fine. Like, people enjoy it. It's fun. If there's a way to monetize it, that's lovely. My concern is not that someone is being paid to throw a ball. I'm from Kentucky. Basketball is our number one religion. Uh, I follow, uh, much to my eternal shame. Um, I do uh, religiously follow my cats. Sports, fine. People getting paid for what they're doing, fine. My concern, though, is this joke I made there about that sports are in some sense a religion. Um, that is that they become this, this spectacle. They become a, a kind of, even if they are not actually a blood sport, a kind of blood sport, a place where we, we reinforce tribalism. And you might think, oh, it's cathartic tribalism. It's not. Um, look at the politicization, politicization of sports today. It's not a catharsis from tribalism. It's just another additive tribe. Um, beyond this, uh, I wrote this argument, this article about this in the Federalist. I was writing from exp an explicitly uh, Christian perspective. Most of the early church fathers would have viewed my opinion as too much of a compromise. They believed that horse racing was literally a sin. That like you sh probably shouldn't be communed if you went to the chariot races this week because the games and spectacles are of no benefit. What good do they do you? Um, it's a waste. Uh, now, um, they, they were ascetic in a variety of ways. Um, I don't think we should all be ascetics. But yeah, I think we do have to interrogate our entertainment and ask, uh, is this a benefit? Is this edifying? Uh, is this really, is this really worthwhile? Would you have said some, the same thing about American sports culture in the 1950s or 60s? I wasn't alive then, so I don't know. What you know of it, though? Maybe not. Do you think it's downstream? I guess the point yeah, is it's, yeah, it's it does, downstream. It does from seem today that our sports culture is more intensified, certainly more commercialized. Um, it is a bigger business than it was. Um, so, and, and of course, not all sports have the same culture. Um, of course, UK basketball is exempted from, uh, from any critiques here. Um, but, uh, um, and also I recognize, you know, university sports are subsidizing all these scholarships or these other things. I'm not arguing there's no benefits. I'm just saying that all else being equal, it would be a better society if just none of us wanted to watch this. Hmm. Uh, as we close out, you've been living the last few months in Hong Kong and, uh, during your time there, there's been a really remarkable um, uprising of uh, democratic fervor, and uh, and the world has uh, certainly got its eyes tuned on on what's happening in Hong Kong. So I want you to kind of unpack that a little bit for us, because as somebody who's been such a astute observer of American culture and politics, and somebody who bothers to have uh, hot takes like the one you just walked <laughs> us through of uh, of how sports and culture intertwine. What new appreciation have you got? Has uh, absence made the heart grow fonder about the United States and, and uh, our institutions? And what have you learned from seeing uh, that democracy movement up close in Hong Kong? Uh, it's made me very thankful for our system. You know, I'm not going to get into the, the details of what's happening in Hong Kong, but many of the rights that they are demonstrating for are things that Americans have ne it's never occurred to us not to have them like the right to show up in your legislature building and protest state legislatures around America have protesters in them. It's just a thing you like, you don't even notice it hardly. There's a guy on the steps waving a sign. That's okay. People are fighting for that. Right. When I'm tweeting about American politics, I don't have to, th I mean, I should think twice, right? Because Twitter's a cesspool, but if I don't, the worst that will happen to me is like, people will be mean to me online. Right. I, I don't, there's not a legal ramification of like tweeting bad takes, basically. Um, that isn't true everywhere in the world. Um, now it is still true in Hong Kong. It's not true right across the border in China. Um, and because of the proximity there, you know, you, you ask yourself before tweeting something or before sending a Facebook message, like, you know, what really, like, how will this be read in another context? Um, America is not that way. It just isn't. And I know people say, well, it's, it's changing. It's good. It's not that way. You don't, you don't know what it's like, uh, to be in a country where 
literally, you might vanish for the things that you say. And Hong Kong is not that way right now either, but you can see it from there. I mean, literally. So it's made me deeply thankful um, for the health of our institutions. We have vigorous debates and we have them in public and everybody says what they're really thinking. And that's wonderful. And at the end of the day, somebody wins and somebody loses and life goes on. Um, and I know everybody thought, well, you know, Obama was uh, so terrible and now Trump is so terrible from, for a different group of people. And whoever's next, I'm sure, will be even more terrible um, for another group of people. But at the end of the day, your life probably went on. For the vast majority of Americans, your life kept going. Um, because our system works. For, you know, 98% of the people, 99% of the time, the system is working. Well, I'm in one did there. Thanks for coming on the show and please come back. Thank you. And that just about does it for this episode. And thanks again to Lyman Stone for joining me. Tune in next time for a conversation with Jim Tankersley, economics reporter at the New York Times and author of a new book, The Riches of This Land. Thanks as always to Abby Gadera for assistance on this episode. As a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Latiri DC. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a thumbs up review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, be well and thanks for listening.